Today, we continue our summer message series, Arrow Prayers. An arrow prayer is a simple, short prayer that brings us into the presence of God. And arrow prayers are just a few words, a sentence or less. We can shoot arrow prayers when we feel particularly vulnerable or anxious. Uh, examples from our series include Peter's, Lord, save me. David's, Lord, forgive me. Elijah's, Lord, answer me. And Hannah's, Lord, remember me. Uh, and we can shoot an arrow prayer when we feel overcome by God's grace. Examples from our series include Thomas's, my Lord and my God. Paul's, give thanks in everything. And today's arrow prayer, Deborah's, praise the Lord. Arrow prayers direct our thoughts to God and show us the way to go. Shooting up brief prayers during the day is a way to continually connect with God as our lives unfold. Now, today's arrow prayer, praise the Lord, is the most overused yet misunderstood arrow prayer of all. In fact, this one can seem pretty worn out. Now, the reason is that we don't fully understand what we're saying. Praise the Lord is an imperative. That is, it's a call to remember and recount what God should be praised for in whatever circumstance it's said. And so, praise the Lord is incomplete unless there's a response. And we'll see this in the story of Deborah, the most effective judge during the times of the, well, the times of the judges. After God delivered Sisera into her hands and gave victory over their Canaanite oppressors with the help of her military commander, Barak, her song in Judges chapter 5 is peppered with two things. Schadenfreude, as she takes pleasure in the misfortune of Israel's enemies, and the phrase, praise the Lord, which is immediately followed by recounting what God accomplished. Now, this morning, I hope to redeem this worn-out catchphrase, which is so overused, it's become a mildly blasphemous taunt used to mock Christians, or even sarcastically by Christians themselves when something bad happens. Well, praise the Lord. May we redeem this essential arrow prayer and fulfill its command by recounting the Lord's gracious deeds. <clears throat> now, Deborah served during the period uh, before the times of the kings, uh, which may be summed up in one verse. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. The times of the judges lasted about 335 years, from 1380 B.C. to 1045 B.C., a time marked by strident self-determination of individuals and the nation apart from God. And to get at the cultural moment in Israel, let's consider one of the more pervasive personas in popular culture these days, influential entertainer Lady Gaga. And she describes herself as a very religious woman who likes to wear large costume jewelry crucifixes and says that Jesus is one of a handful of men she'd consider serving and calls her intense theatrical concert performances church. In fact, Lady Gaga considers herself a preacher, an apostle. And giving her looming, still-growing presence in pop culture, a good question seems to be an apostle of what? Well, the best term I can think of and answer is, is that uh, it's strident self-determination. Stephanie Germanota also known as Lady Gaga. Her message is that salvation comes by taking charge of one's identity and remaining unapologetic. 
and she encourages her little monsters, which she calls her fans, to, re to reject, defy, outwit, or ignore any and all external judges of behavior, whether from parents, spouses, or anyone else. And she says that life is this. It's about being reborn again and again until you find the identity inside yourself that defines you best for who you are and that makes you most feel like a champion of life. I do not doubt that Lady Gaga is well-intentioned, seeking to provide a voice for individuals and groups marginalized in our culture. But her embrace of personal truth and rejection of an external standard is a perfect match for the times of the judges. Now, the times of the judges spanned the period from the taking of the promised land to the monarchy in Israel. Moses brought the Jews uh, to the promised land but did not take them across the Jordan River into it, leaving that task for Joshua. Joshua became their commander-in-chief as they conquered the various kings and people in the land, dividing the territory amongst the 12 tribes. Israel flourished spiritually and politically under Joshua's leadership. However, when Joshua and his generation died out, the people turned away and worshiped false gods on platforms in the rolling hills of Palestine. In Judges 2.12, it says, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger. Now, the Jews became little monsters who rejected, defied, and ignored the external judge of behavior, the God who brought them out of Egypt. They worshiped Canaanite gods who suited their lifestyle. They felt no shame until they felt the painful consequences of their choices. When they cried out for relief, the Lord provided a judge to rescue his people. Judges 2.16 says that the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. And as long as the judge lived, they were safe. Judges 2.19 says, but when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Judges chapters 4 and 5 uh, account for the third cycle of decline and deliverance chronicled uh, in the book of Judges. Let's look at that. Now, Judges chapter 4 verse 1 says, After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagayim. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly opposed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now, Ehud, the left-handed judge from Benjamin, uh, which means son of my right hand, so he's a left-handed bud, the, the son of my right hand is the left-handed judge, <laughs> thrust, he thrust an 18-inch sword, handle and all, into the belly fat of wicked King Eglon of Moab ending a cycle of oppression. But with Ehud's passing from the scene, the Israelites fell away and ended up in the hands of Jabin, described as king of Canaan. Now, Canaan was made up of a number of city-states, each of which was ruled by a king. And Jabin was likely the head of a confederation of kings. His base of operations was Hazor, uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, a town Joshua burned uh, while taking the land, but the Canaanites rebuilt and occupied. Uh, a legendary general named Sisera led Jabin's forces. And you get the idea from the text and ancillary, ancillary writings that Sisera, not Jabin, was the real power amongst the Canaanite kings. 
Now, Cicero was a mythic figure that conquered every foe, uh, whose voice shook walls and who caught fish in his beard when he bathed in the Kishon. Those are some of the legends around Cicero. And Sisera under Jabin terrorized Israel for 20 years with a fearsome force that included 900 chariots, the most advanced battle technology of the time. And no one used the major highways in Israel for fear of being robbed or killed. Travelers took to winding paths and village life ceased. The whole community was paralyzed and helpless. The people were so demoralized, they didn't even bother to make weapons. Uh, the text says in chapter 5 that not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. When they cried out again for help, God sent them more than a judge. He sent them a prophetess to deal with their core issue, spiritual decline. Deborah would lead them into the valley, away from the high places. In Judges chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. And she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. And the name Deborah means eloquence or be, as in busy as a. Now, she's the first and only woman to exercise authority in ancient Israel. Her story takes place between the years 1209 and 1169 BC. And while Ehud was a fine judge, Deborah was more than that. She's described as a prophetess, holding court in that chaotic time under what came to be called the Palm of Deborah in the hill country of Ephraim. Deborah is one of a handful of prophetesses mentioned in the Bible. Moses' sister, Miriam, was a prophetess, as was Huldah, mentioned in 2 Kings, and Noadiah in Nehemiah. Uh, in the New Testament, Anna, and then also Philip's four daughters are described as prophetesses. However, none of these serve the dual role of prophetess and national leader. Theologian Scott McKnight described Deborah as the president, the pope, and Rambo bundled in one female body. And today, some Christians speak of the Deborah anointing, referencing women who break through the barriers of cultural and gender prejudices to use their gifts. She was a woman of strength and conviction who brought order out of chaos. Deborah was a wife to Lapidoth, but a mother to all of Israel, in, uh, providing, thus says the Lord, in a time of spiritual and moral confusion. Judges chapter 4 goes on to tell the story of Israel's deliverance under her leadership. In verse 6, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from, Kid, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. And Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. And so Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now, Barak was the commander of Israel's forces, and it's possible he wanted to bring Deborah along as a sort of good luck charm, a confidence builder for the troops. Um, ancients typically took their gods in, in the form of amulets into battle with them. And since Deborah represented God, she could fill that role. 
Or Brock just wanted to make sure Deborah was sure. Brock would be the one putting his life on the line. Was Deborah sure enough to put some skin in the game? Sisera had those 900 chariots with the full army behind them. Israel had to hastily make some weapons, and their forces would have been disorganized by comparison. But Deborah knew she could lose her life, but she had no doubts in God and immediately agreed to go. Obedience is the product of faith. But she adds a caveat. Since Barak balked at the word of the Lord, the honor for the victory will not go to him. It will go to a woman instead. And as a result of his conditional obedience, he will suffer the huge indignity for a military leader of having his task fulfilled by a woman. God will accomplish his purposes with or without Barak. Now, the greatness of Deborah is seen in her willingness to embody God's message. She could easily have said no to Barak and remained far from the fray. But Deborah was not willing to simply know and speak God's word. She rolled up her sleeves. She got her hands dirty. She put her life on the line. She incarnated God's truth. It lived in her and through her. Authenticity and integrity led to availability and humility. Despite her multiple roles as wife, mother, prophetess, and national leader, Deborah didn't choose strident self-determination. For Deborah, it was not independence, but dependence on God. Not autonomy, but submission to God. Not self-reliance, but trust in God. Not rebellion, but peace with God. There was nothing self-serving about Deborah. She wasn't interested in personal reinventions or defining her identity. She let God do that, uh, and this is what she became, a servant, a sage, a spiritual guide, and a national savior. Lady Gaga would have led her little monsters up into the hills. Deborah led the nation to a whole new life. Verse 12, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harasheth Hagayim to the Kishon River. The Song of Deborah and Barak in Judges chapter 5 lists those who participated in this battle. While Naphtali and Zebulun fully supported the effort, other tribes sent just a few men, uh, while some sent none. Uh, in verse, chapter 5, it says, In the districts of Reuben there was much searching of heart. And they stayed by the campfires and tended their flocks. The tribe of Dan lingered by the ships, it says, remaining on the coast instead of getting involved, while the people of Zebulun and Naphtali risked their lives. They searched their hearts and said, here am I, Lord, send somebody else. And they were more interested in self-determination than the corporate good. They chose to stay by their high places of comfort and compromise. The battle was on Sisera's home ground, which was a massive advantage for them. But Barak, to his credit, pushed forward with the battle with Deborah shouting encouragement. Verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And so Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagayim, and all the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Judges 5 explains the scene. King Jabin's alliance of Canaanite kings gathered against the Israelites, but they soon found that heaven was fighting against them. Judges chapter 5, verse 20, it says, From the heavens the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. 
Sisera's army crossed the river and got hit by a flash flood. Verse 21, it says, the river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Their god, Baal, the god of storms, was supposed to take care of stuff like this. And Sisera's army panicked, desperately trying to escape, and their chariots stuck in a sea of mud, uh, removing their advantage. His forces decimated. Sisera was forced to flee on foot. And now Deborah's prophecy is fulfilled as Sisera meets his unexpected end. In Judges 4, 17 and following, it says Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because they were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she put a covering over him. He said, I'm thirsty. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. Now, among Bedouin tribes, pitching the tent is regarded as a woman's task. And so Jael would have known her way around a hammer. And Sisera thought he was on friendly turf since Heber's clan had separated themselves out from Israel and allied with Jabin. When Jael came out and invited him into her tent, he was confident that he was safe. And in that culture, nobody would dare enter a wife's tent but her husband. And so uh, this was his plan. But by asking for her to lie, along with his obvious haste, Jael surmised that the Canaanites' hold on Palestine was broken. And Jael's actions stand as one of the most heinous, deceitful acts we could imagine. She broke a treaty, broke a promise, and broke open a man's head. But Deborah put it to music calling her most blessed of women. In Judges chapter 5, verse 24, it says, and this is her song, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water, she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. And then the refrain, at her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. And we should remember that Jabin and Sisera's oppression and exploitation of the Jews was extraordinarily cruel. For many years, if the Canaanite army had won the battle, hundreds of Jewish girls would have been captured and raped. But Jael wasn't a Semitic Lady Macbeth who murdered for personal gain. Her actions saved the lives of thousands of women. Deborah made no mistake about who gave the victory. But even though God's hand was evident throughout, this was a shocking victory for a woman of that day. And Deborah lifted her praise to God in the form of a song that creatively described God's acts on behalf of Israel and called the nation and all creation to praise the Lord. Let's look at Judges chapter 5. 
verses 1 through 9, the heart of this song. It says, On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Binoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the king of Israel, in song. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. Now, in her call to praise the Lord, Deborah called for people to give God the adoration and approval he deserves. Uh, writer Henry Nouwen has noted that in Jesus, no division existed between his words and his actions, between what he said and what he did. And Jesus is the word made flesh. And by praising the Lord, then reciting the reasons for that praise, his word is enfleshed in us uh, as words become actions. Praise the Lord is more than an acknowledgement of God's goodness. It's an act of submission to God and recognizes what is absolutely timelessly true. Praying praise the Lord, then acknowledging the good gifts that come from God is his word being made flesh in us. Now, every living being has the purpose of giving God praise. And Psalm 150 verse 6 says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And praise is a genuine response to the singular greatness of God. Psalm 150 verse 2 says, Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. In Ephesians, uh, beginning in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, as Paul begins his letter, he leads with, Praise be to God. And so he says, praise the Lord. Then he responds with specific reasons to do so. Verse 3, because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, because he chose us to be holy and blameless. Verse 5, because he adopted us as his own children. Verse 7, because he redeemed us with his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Chapter 1, verse 8, because he made the mystery of his will and plan of redemption known to us. Verse 11, because he gave us an inheritance. Verse 13, because he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Like exhortations to pray unceasingly and give thanks in everything, praise the Lord should be constant. Psalm 31, 34, verse 1 says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. But this is much easier said than done. It's easy to praise God when we are happy and things are going well in our lives. But what about when they are not? Uh, to praise God in the midst of hardships requires a sacrifice in response to Jesus' sacrifice for us. We could never do this on our own, at least not authentically. But Jesus' sacrifice makes it possible to praise God, and our sacrifice of praise is through him. Hebrews 13, 15, it says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. If we deny the reality of our situation, 
Saying praise the Lord doesn't lead to heartfelt responses that fill in uh, why God should be praised. Hoping in God and praising God go together. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. Psalm 71, 14. We have the assurance of God's faithfulness. So, praise the Lord. Now, the arrow prayers, praise the Lord and give thanks in everything, do go together. Praising the Lord is fulfilled in giving thanks. It's saying it and seeing it. When we finally find a parking spot and breathe out, praise the Lord, (laughs) we should give thanks that now we can be on time or we can stop driving in circles. When we overcome a weakness and do the right thing, we breathe out, praise the Lord, and thank God for what we've been protected from. When we show patience with one of our children or see our hopes for health and maturity fulfilled in them, we praise the Lord and explain our thankfulness. The pandemic creates constant challenges to appropriate responses to events in our lives. The arrow prayer, praise the Lord, invites God into our moments. When we structure our day and accomplish our goals, we pray, praise the Lord, and thank God for what's been done. When we see marginalized people accepted and cared for, we pray, praise the Lord, and thank God that his creatures are seen and heard. When we enjoy a a great meal in conversation with friends, we praise the Lord and recite the line items of blessings in that moment. Praise the Lord is the opposite of strident self-determination. This arrow prayers defines us according to the Lord we love and what he's done. Praise the Lord. It's more than an arrow prayer. It's a way of life for those who love the Lord.